Welcome to The Lowdown, a podcast of news and ideas from the Columbia Alumni Association. In case the internet hasn't already reminded you, March is Women's History Month. So we decided to close out this month of celebration and recognition with a conversation about women with some pretty impressive Columbia women. This June, Columbia Business School and Barnard College are teaming up to create an executive education program aimed at women. It's called Women in Leadership, Expanding Influence and Leading Change. According to its website, the program is designed to, quote, help elevate the impact of women leaders, enabling them to navigate the business landscape, develop and leverage their talents, and step into roles of greater influence, end quote. This program builds on a conversation that was already prevalent, but has reached a new level of exposure over the past six years or so. It could and has been argued that this increase in attention is due in large part to Sheryl Sandberg. As the COO of Facebook, Sandberg was well positioned to publicly pose a question that no one seemed to really be asking at the time. Why do we have so few women leaders? This question became the basis for her TED Talk in 2010, her Barnard commencement speech in 2011, and her best-selling book, Lean In, in 2013. The question sparked a national conversation about women and their roles in the workplace. So to discuss this question and many others, we sat down with the women running this new executive education program. We started out by speaking with Rita McGrath, who is the faculty director for the program, a professor at the business school, and also a Barnard graduate. And the first thing we asked her about was the program itself. Uh, so the Women in Leadership program, I was kind of a latecomer to it. Well, the way it got started was uh, Deborah Spar uh, led the charge, she's the president of Barnard, led the charge to establish the Athena Center for Leadership Studies some years ago. And they'd been developing a number of programs with corporations, helping them think through a more effective way to help develop their women leaders. And the folks at the Athena Centers thought it would be really great to take some of that knowledge and insight and turn it into an open enrollment program, which could touch many more companies and many more people, even if they didn't want to do a whole corporate program. I confess when they first approached me, you know, my initial reaction was kind of women's leadership in 2016, really? <laughs> but they won me over because as you look at the research, it's just, it's just very compelling that there are things that need to happen in organizations and there are things that women can do to make the situation for women's advancement much richer. Rita brings up an interesting point here. Why is a program like this about women's leadership needed now in 2016? Shouldn't this be a non-issue now? Turns out that the research suggests otherwise. Much of the design of the curriculum was based on the research that um, has been published recently, as well as, honestly, not so recently. This is Ilana Weinstein. She's the program director and works with the Athena Leadership Center at Barnard. She's also a certified coach and diversity practitioner. I've been in the diversity and inclusion field for many, many years, and um, some of the points made in recent research, frankly, are not that different from points made 10 years ago. I found a letter that I wrote to the New York Times that was published in the New York Times in 1995 talking about the representation of women in executive roles mm -hmm. and how it had increased by 9% over the last decade. So from 1985 to 1995, it had increased by 9%. And the um, 
percentage has really not shifted that dramatically since then. So you have, and it's projected that globally, um, in Asia, for example, it's only projected to be at 28% by the year 2025. So that number just doesn't seem to fluctuate that much. And the research is still contending with why is that? What are the barriers? Why do women face steeper challenges, steeper barriers to leadership? Okay, so a lot hasn't changed. But some things have obviously changed between now and 10 or even 20 years ago. But maybe they just haven't changed dramatically enough. I think what's different now is there are equal numbers of men and women coming into the workforce. And and women are doing okay up to the mid-levels. They are getting promotions. They are... Um, getting places. This is Rochelle Cooper. She's an executive coach and is directing the coaching component for the program. She's also a Barnard and Teachers College alumna. But from the mid to senior levels, that's where there's an issue. And a lot of women either drop out or they just stay where they are. So why is that? Um, So there are things definitely the organizations could be doing to help them. But I see over and over again, the things that we see in the research, women can help themselves and they hold themselves back Mm -hmm. sometimes. Um, they don't always take risk. So I want to mention before, men take more risk. So if there's a job that's available and a man thinks he could do 50% of that, he's going to say, yeah, I can do that. And inwardly saying, I'll figure it out. But (laughs) he'll do that. A woman, she might be 85% confident that she could do the job. She'll say, I'll wait till next year. Ask me next year. So there's this factor of risk-taking, this factor of confidence, and advocating for yourself. Men ask for things all the time. Get me a promotion. Get me another uh, job. I need visibility. Women often don't ask. They hope that they will get recognized. If I do a really good job, keep my head down, do what I have to do, get out to the rest of my life, I'll be fine and I'll, I'll get where I want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and one additional component that I see is often they think at the next level it's a lot more responsibility. And I don't know if I can handle that with balancing everything that I have to balance. And often it's not that they have to do more, it's that they have to do it differently. Mm. And and so they're just, it's scary, and it's a risk, so they often don't do that. I completely echo everything Rochelle said, and in addition, I think it's part of it can be attributed to the way that girls are socialized, right, Um, as far as even when when they're very little. And there was an article in the Times recently that talked about how girls are taught to be careful, right? So when they're playing sports or when they're in whatever activities they're doing, they need to be caught, they need to be careful that they don't hurt themselves. Or And if you would ever think of anyone telling a boy to be careful when he's engaged in a sport, or it just, just doesn't happen. So, um, you know, some of that needs to change and shift also. I was very, very particular, and my colleagues at the time... Um, jokingly criticized me for it, but I was very particular about what films my three-year-old daughter saw. I didn't show her any Disney movies at all up until the age of like four or five, and people were astounded. They said, how could you not show your daughter a Disney movie? And I'd say, well, why should I show her a Disney movie? One parent is always dead. It's very often the mother, uh, the girls, at, and this was years ago, so to Disney's credit, it's changed since then, but a lot of, there were a lot of princesses there were a lot of portrayals of girls and women in a very um, subservient right classically traditional female way so 
it's, it's, it influences in a big way. Changing women's roles in the workplace is as much the responsibility of the individual as it is the organization. Rita brought up one common workplace occurrence that demonstrates this nexus between the two. It's something that Barnard alum and business strategist Anne Huff calls the phenomenon of women being the wives of the organization. Women sort of fall into these roles of, well, I'm the one that sends the thank you cards. I'm the one that organizes the annual picnic. I'm the one that remembers to send flowers to the board of directors, secretary. I'm the one. And, you know, first of all, it adds a lot of work. Secondly, it's not work that does much for you. You know, it's not work that is regarded with respect or esteem. And in a lot of organizations, they just kind of fall into this habit of expecting that some, if there's a woman in the room, she's going to take notes. You know, if there's a woman in the room, she's going to make sure the coffee cups get cleaned up. And and, um, and it's even worse internationally. So I think we, what we need to make organizations aware of is that, you know, you, that's just not okay. And it does actually have consequences. And so when I work with companies on these kinds of issues, I, I will deliberately move the roles around. And I'll say, okay, you know, Joe, you're taking notes today. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just make it clear that, that this, these are burdens to be spread equally, not, not sort of left to one person. Yeah, it's actually really fascinating. I've witnessed it firsthand where, yeah. because I've done a lot of facilitation. And so in a classroom, if you break up a class into four or five groups and, a flip, and have them at flip charts, Mm-hmm. inevitably in a five-person group if there's one woman in that group she will be the one nominated to take notes and I've seen it happen both ways where she will either um, be told oh you know what you have better handwriting you take the notes and we'll just accept it and say okay right and be willing and do it or um, the woman will volunteer but it's fa- it's actually really fascinating and doing exactly that turning it around and saying no you know what why don't you take notes your handwriting may not be as good as mine, but, you know, yeah. go for it. It's it's powerful. It's really powerful. And another phenomenon that we were um, talking about the other day is based on some research by my colleague Adam Galinsky. And they did these studies where they would match people's names with certain kinds of skills and abilities. And so the names would be either male or female. And the background would show either greater experience or greater education. Mm-hmm. And in the first experiment they ran, they didn't tell the respondents anything in particular about the people and the respondents always picked the man and when they picked the man and were asked why they said if the man had more experience they said oh well experience is the more important thing if they picked the man where education was the high thing they said oh well education was the more important thing so another really simple organizational intervention is to say let's settle on the criteria first and then we're going to look at what the um, um, choices are Uh, This actually echoes a really famous um, change that was made in the way symphony orchestras are recruited. And, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, orchestras were like 99% men. It was all men. And the premise at the time was, well, you know, men are more steady, men are better musicians, men are more innately talented. And then a group of people said, wait a minute, that can't possibly be. Let's run an experiment. And so what they did was they set up blind auditions where the people judging the auditions couldn't see the participants and they put carpeting down on the floor so you couldn't hear like high heels click click clicking and the results were astonishing the chances of women being elected to uh, chosen for a symphony orchestra rose by something like 400 percent i mean just that one simple change of taking gender out of the analysis when you're trying to judge based on actual accomplishment 
and you you also reminded me of a study that was done at Harvard quite a while ago, which is called the Implicit Association Test, mm-hmm. where it's actually an online test that you can do, and there are multiple categories. There's gender, there's race and ethnicity, there's sexual orientation, there's religion, there's uh, appearance, and all sorts. But um, you can go online and do this test, and what it does is it reveals some of your unconscious biases and some of the implicit associations that you make. And just because you're a woman doesn't mean that you're going to be biased in favor of other women, right? So you can, in fact, have a bias, be biased against an identity group that you're a part of. Ilana talked a little bit about the reasons that this bias might crop up in the workplace. And one of those reasons might be the notion of the queen bee. The notion of the queen bee is that there's this very um, senior, powerful woman who does not... um, support or in fact can um, damage or or prevent other women from succeeding because they feel threatened, Mm. right? And I was thinking about it and part of it is really due to the fact that because these roles in, in a way are so precious, right? There are so few women in these roles that when women finally do ascend into these roles, they're almost protective of them staying there. Mm. And so the idea that they worked really hard, fought really hard to get to this place, and that somebody else could take that away from them could be contributing to why that phenomenon happened. And how do organizations combat these biases? Rita offered one possible solution that Deloitte, the professional services firm, developed. Deloitte did a big study some years ago uh, because they were very worried about this leaky pipeline where you know they were recruiting equal numbers of women and men and then losing these very expensive hires as they moved up the hierarchy. And one of the phenomena they found was that the kinds of assignments which would lead to promotion in, a, in an organization like that tended to be high-stress clients, lots of travel, long hours, um, you know, around peak times, you just had to be in the office 24-7, and that a lot of people responsible for allocating those kinds of jobs to people avoided women, because they made the assumption without asking the women that they wouldn't be willing to take those roles, they wouldn't be willing to step up. And so one of the things they started to do was randomize assignments. They actually created a computer program, which would randomly pick from an eligible pool of people, and then they you know, they asked. And that that alone kind of doubled the number of women who were in these jobs, which lined them up for starters. The, the large corporate equivalent is uh, what a friend of mine calls, you find women in the R's, I-R-H-R-L-R. <laughs> and they're not line jobs, so they don't really set you up for that next step up. I see a lot that women want to do everything perfectly well. So they're seen as people who execute amazingly well. They get results. They do what they're supposed to do. Mm. But they almost put themselves, even if they're not in an R job, uh, they almost put themselves in that light. Um, I know women who lead the most senior leadership team meetings, but they put themselves as a facilitator, and you do this and you do that, and this is how the process will work, as opposed to speaking about their own areas Mm. and sharing their own strategic thoughts. So this whole concept of being at the table and sharing their thoughts as opposed to just what they're working on, often women often don't do that. Mm-hmm. And they really need to think about, how can I be an equal player at this table and share? this. They often do have those abilities. They just don't open the door for other people to see them. And those are the qualities they look for in the most senior level roles. Mm-hmm. So they need to start displaying that and sharing their thoughts. You know, they often think, 
I don't know, should I? I'm going to sound stupid. Maybe I shouldn't do that. And, and they often don't. That was something else that we were talking about yesterday, which is this the imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. where um, women suffer from the imposter syndrome much more than men do, where they feel that they're not qualified enough or that they don't they're not a total expert in the topic and so they tend to doubt themselves and or perhaps feel like a fraud or a fake right and then there's the whole notion of fake it till you make it which there's been a lot of um talks on so yeah and and if they make a mistake or they fail in some way Mm -hmm. they take it very 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 hard very critical of themselves and it's hard for them to bounce back and keep going whereas a man would say Okay, I made a mistake. I'll just keep moving. And that's also, by the way, typical with other underrepresented groups as well. Mm -hmm. So if in a corporation you have um, representation of certain populations, for instance, African Americans or Hispanics or women or what have you, are underrepresented, those groups, people in those groups tend to feel that they're under a microscope, right? Or that they're under the spotlight. And so... Every action, every behavior is there. It's like they're on trial or they're on parade or right. It's examined even more acutely than their white male counterparts, or at least that's what they feel. So the tendency to um, be very critical and want to try and make sure that everything is perfect is because they they live under that microscope. And all their mishaps get amplified. All their mishaps. Because let's get let's be realistic. Most. Oh, Gender discrimination today, I, I think, has not been overt. But there are cases where there are people sort of rooting for somebody to fail. Really? And, oh, yeah. And, and, and that gets amplified. So a mistake is taken a CC. I told you so. You know, you promote her and it's going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to mention a phenomenon that has been recently kind of in the news, which is something called the glass cliff. I don't know if you've heard of this, yeah. And this is that when you've got a situation that's really screwed up, you know, you've got a company in terrible trouble, think General Motors, Mm -hmm. think IBM, Uh, or you've got a situation where, you know, things are at an impasse and you just don't know how to cut through that. One of the things that will happen is men will turn down an assignment that looks that horrible, Mm -hmm. and women will sometimes step up to the the plate. Uh, One of my my dearest colleagues is a woman named Nancy McKinstry, who's actually one of our Columbia Business School grads. And she was actually put in charge of Walter's Kluwer, which is a big provider of information, digital. In in the old days, it was a big publisher. So they they serve the legal profession, the medical profession, um, a a professional kind of association. They run legal databases. And they were really doing very badly. They'd had a series of acquisitions that hadn't been integrated. They had, it was kind of a mess. And Nancy was a very unlikely candidate to be put in charge of as CEO because she was based in the U.S. She's American. The company's based in the Netherlands. Um, you know, it's very old school, very old school company. But one of their boards of directors had seen what she'd done in the U.S. business, was very impressed with her. And when they kind of came up empty for other candidates, he put her name forward. And in a sort of a, well, okay, if you think she can handle it, move, they actually promoted her to CEO. Now, she's been in the role 10 years now. She's been very successful. She's taken the company from 25% digital revenue to now they're 75% digital and only 25% is still analog. And I just think she's a wonderful leader and a real role model. But, you know, it could have gone wrong. I mean, sometimes these cases are just beyond saving. <laughs> and, uh, and so a lot of times one of the downsides of women sort of feeling, if I don't take this job, I'm never going to get this chance again, is they get put in charge of these awful situations. That leaky pipeline that Rita mentioned is getting to be a pretty big problem. 
And according to Rochelle, companies are starting to recognize that and are trying to make some changes. I think that companies are realizing that they don't have the representation that they need. There's a concept out there that a lot of companies are buying into, which is called the 30% Club, where they're trying to get 30% representation at the most senior levels. Right now, I think it's about 19% um, in general in the U.S., So they're looking for ways to really build their pipelines so they have the women to then promote and to look to. From the strategy side, there's there's an accumulating and rather large body of evidence that shows that companies with more diverse executive teams, more diverse boards, um, and this is women as well as other people that think differently, um, just outperform. And when you sort of think about it, it makes perfect sense. I mean, if you take a company like Procter & Gamble or... Um, an insurance company or a bank, you know, the overwhelming number of decision makers about who is going to buy that product or not are, are women. And so you've got a bunch of guys in a boardroom making pretty significant resource allocation decisions who have absolutely no visceral connection with what that buyer is going through. And so I think just having the ability to bring in that perspective uh, is huge. So diversity is a huge benefit in the workplace, and companies are beginning to recognize this. It seems like some big changes might be right around the corner, and Ilana is cautiously optimistic about it. I'm hopeful that we're approaching, and I I underscore approaching, a tipping point in that there have been signs in the millennial generation that men are equally care about time with family, volunteer work, meaningful work, not dedicating every single second in the office, right? And the research shows that women still disproportionately take care of household chores, take child care, um, so they're still elder care, so they're still bearing the burden more so than men. But I think it's starting to turn very, very slowly, but I'm noticing among in my circles and hopefully... You know, my circles aren't just one type, but that there are a lot of young men out there who are wanting to contribute in a more equal way on the home life front. No, we're really seeing the first generation of women at at sort of early professional stages in the workforce who grew up under Title IX. Mm -hmm. And when I tell my daughter, who's now 25, about my high school, like sports opportunities, it was, I think, intramural kickball. You could be a cheerleader. You could be a majorette, you know, and that was about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And, of course, Title IX meant that women had to have equal opportunities as men did. And so my daughter's friends all played travel soccer. They were all, like, being recruited by high schools for their travel skills. They were in very competitive sports, female ice hockey. Who knew? Um, And And so those young women have now brought with them into their circles of friends the expectations of teamwork, competition that's healthy. You know, they they don't really put up with this stuff about, you know, you have a completely different role to play than I do as a man. My daughter is 13, and she just became the first girl to join the all-boys baseball team. Yay! But what was great was that when she was thinking about, you know, persuading the athletics department to let her do this, the boys were completely armed and ready to back her up. And so that, you know, just that experience, I think, for her and for the boys really shifts their thinking. So boys today are much more accepting and embracing of girls being in places maybe where they weren't before. Ilana thinks that we are on the precipice of some major changes. 
And Rita suggests that institutions like Barnard are uniquely positioned to help bring some of these changes into practice. There's just a huge amount of evidence that women who have attended women's colleges, and Barnard actually is at the top of this list, um, outperform in whatever field of endeavor they choose to compete in. So whether it's the arts, whether it's writing, whether it's business, um, that relative to equal pairs of women from co-educational institutions, the women at women's colleges do a lot better. So to me, um, at this, at this, I think you referred to a tipping point, Alana, um, at this tipping point, Barnard is just kind of perfectly positioned at this nexus between companies being interested in this, the whole kind of income inequality opportunity, do we make that available for other, everybody, and then what does it take to really perform as a business in, in a strategy sense? And I think Barnard's just beautifully positioned at the center of that. Um, and as for the business school part, um, they've been very enthusiastic. You know, our dean is really working hard on increasing the number of women in our MBA program, uh, really trying to make sure that when our women are in those programs, they get the chance to succeed and that they get the opportunities that are equivalent to men. I think this comes also at a shift in our economy from, certainly we see it at the business school, we went through a period where we were just obsessed with either consulting or financial services. I mean, it was it was like one of those little lobster claws, you know, and the whole school was kind of getting tilted over for that. And I think uh, I think what's happened in recent years is is there's been a really revisiting of that notion in the sense that. You know, we need artists, and we need people who are creative, and we need people who think digitally, and we need people who are capable of telling stories. And so the school is really shifting its center of gravity to be much more open to the kinds of careers and the kinds of interests women have traditionally excelled in. So I think it's a great time for the school as well. So what kind of impact can a program like this one have on women? After a program like this, where women really think about what do I want and what am I going to do about it, we see that they get promotions, they get additional responsibility, they have a broader impact. They step out of the little box that they're in and they try new things. And with the help of um, the professors in the program, with the help of the, the peer cohorts that we talked about, they really egg each other on in a sense. Like, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to take that risk? Are you going to step out of your box? And if they, they follow up afterwards and they hold each other accountable. Well, you said you were going to do that, did you? And in the end, I see amazing results. Every single woman does something differently and they either get a promotion or get additional responsibility. So it's huge. It's really huge. What I really liked about the approach that Barnard was proposing was it's very carefully done. It's based on very solid research and the interventions show promise of being really long lasting. And so it's not, don't think of it as a course. Think of it as a preparation phase where women are really getting some assessment, getting some coaching, being prepared to move into a different part. Then they have this in-person moment where they are with like-minded other folks and get taught really critical skills. You know, things like how do you advocate for yourself in a way that doesn't make you feel cheesy? <laughs> you know, how do you uh, promote your accomplishments in a way that doesn't seem self-serving? How do you walk that tightrope, you know, which women have between if you're very assertive, you know, you're seen negative negatively for a set of reasons. And if you're very flexible and congenial, you're seen as a lightweight. And how do you find your way in that kind of mode? It's not just preparation for the women in terms of their leadership skills, but a big piece of it is also helping the women to think about how they can use what they've learned to make change in their organizations, right? Because it's really a two-way street. It's 
the women investing in their own leadership skills, and then it's what organizations need to do to change the culture and policies, etc. And women, as well as men, can be great champions and change agents for that. So how can we prepare them to be those change agents? The Women in Leadership program starts June 22nd, and if you're a graduate of Columbia, you can take advantage of the alumni tuition benefit for this program, which offers a 15% tuition benefit for you and up to four of your colleagues on non-degree executive education programs. You can find out more about the program and the tuition benefit at gsb.columbia.edu slash execed. That's gsb.columbia.edu slash E-X-E-C-E-D. podcast was produced by the Columbia Alumni Association. Columbia University is a mecca of great ideas and one of the world's greatest cities. And with over 320,000 Columbia alumni who are leaders in every field imaginable and spread across the world, the Columbia Alumni Association brings you the latest musings, updates, and insights from Columbia University. Learn more about the Columbia Alumni Association at alumni.columbia.edu. And to get even more news and ideas from Columbia, check out the lowdown.alumni.columbia.edu.